This is the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast interview with Brittany Tashkoff. And because I'm a white female, it was not harder. It was not even harder. It's hard, but there are not other layers for me. There were not other um, thoughts that I had to have. And this is when I start started beginning to have the observation of, I only had to start thinking about that, or I only start really started thinking about this for the last three years. That is my privilege. I did not have to grow up talking about how I would walk through the world. And this is where I will name the Black Lives Matter movement as so invaluable. And I will also name that when it first started, I was only partially paying attention at first. I will name this in myself. Um, It's so important and I need to be doing my work. And so while I would say I started my work years ago, I'm applying my work probably only in the last week. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Kayati, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Brittany Tachkov, who you heard last week has an e-course on music therapy ed about funding and program development. So if you want to learn some more about what we touched on last week from her, you can check out that course. This episode comes with a big disclaimer at the beginning that we will be discussing white privilege alongside the Black Lives Matter movement. So Brittany and I originally chose the topic of cultural humility, and this episode was recorded on Saturday, June 6th. So uh, between the choice of topic and the recording date, there was a lot, a lot of motion in the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of call to action for those of us who are white to reflect, to learn, and to do better. So Brittany and I offer this conversation to you as an example of that. Please know that we are two white women uh, speaking and reflecting to our experience We do not in any way intend to cause harm. We've reviewed and edited this show several times and know that there will still be mistakes. Uh, We hope it's a learning experience for us and the rest of you listening. So that being said, if there is a portion of the show that uh, resonates with you or feels dissonant to you, please feel free to reach out. To make that easier for this episode and all episodes moving forward, I will be adding a link to a survey in the show notes where you can add some feedback about the episode, positive or negative. This idea comes from Kate Shannon of the Creative Therapy Umbrella podcast, um, 
and I thought this was a really good idea to create more of a dialogue uh, and direct communication between you, the listener, and me, the host, and also the guest. So if you feel called to, please check out that survey anytime. You can also um, have a conversation with someone else about why you might be feeling that way. We're hoping that this episode will be a jumping off point and encourage more of you to also have these reflections and conversations. I want to thank Brittany so much for her vulnerability in this episode um, because it's tough to have these conversations to begin with, but it's even more difficult knowing that it's being recorded and shared. So please know that this is just supposed to be a conversation starter um, with most of the episodes. Just like I say, it's from different perspectives. That's what we're doing here uh, at the Music Therapy Chronicles. We're sharing meaningful conversations and different perspectives. So thank you for tuning in each week. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you for doing the work yourself as we all grow and learn together during this transformative time. If you're enjoying the show and want to support the Music Therapy Chronicles, you can do so by leaving a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Music Therapy Chronicles. You can join our group on Facebook where that would be a great place to discuss this episode at large and start a conversation, have a conversation, find a buddy to talk about things with, to learn from each other and grow personally and professionally. And you can also find us on patreon.com. All right, let's get into part two of my conversation with Brittany. Let's, let's take that uh, and transition because you wanted to touch on cultural humility today. Mm. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Didn't mean and to I just say keep that talking. Right yes. As <laughs> right as you're drinking, but let's take our voices and be heard. So let's get uncomfortable. Tell, tell the listeners about your views on cultural humility and, um, you know, maybe some changes in the current climate. Yes. So uh, underneath all of the business and connection and what I would say are kind of surface level learnings in these first five years, I had to start getting uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that started with um, noticing that, well, actually, I feel like it started maybe only three years ago when I started this position And that was the first time I had heard the word cultural humility, not cultural competence, cultural humility. And up until that point, I felt like I was receiving instructional information on here are what different cultures, here are what different religions may do as far as practices or what might influence them in um, how they interact with you when, you know, these kind of um, putting people into a box of of definitions, this kind of antiquated model of explaining our differences. And when I heard the term cultural humility, and when my orientation was focused instead on being curious and not knowing that was the, probably the first time that I started thinking, hmm, I've been doing this wrong. I've been doing this wrong for a while. And I still don't 100% know what this means for me as a clinician. And so I began sitting more with what is identity and what, what is cultural humility. And, and trying to build awareness around when I was saying things wrong. 
So even as I start talking about this conversation in cultural humility, I hear myself talking around the issue, right? Yeah. I hear, you know, this was the first part of my journey was talking around, right? Talking about culture, talking about identity, um, being able to name what was wrong in my education and not necessarily what was wrong in my actions. Mm. That's where I started. I started with, okay, we're looking at this idea of culture. And that started narrowing when I, I think that was actually only probably a, a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Um, I really began to articulate more of it when I went to a personal and professional bias CMTE by Jennifer Geiger. Shout out to Jennifer Geiger. Um, and it had more of those hard questions of how do I identify? So for all of the listeners here, because you can't see me and I can hide behind my voice, I am a white cisgender female <laughs> who, when you look at intersectionality, carries a majority of privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had to start sitting with, here are all of the places where I have power in different situations. And how am I using that power for my advantage? How much of that power actually goes into some of the successes that I've had so far? So yes, I have a business mindset and yes, there's timing. I can't help but get curious about, and because I'm a white female, it was not harder. It was not even harder. It's hard, but there are not other layers yeah. for me. There were not other um, thoughts that I had to have. And this is when I start, started beginning to have the observation of I only had to start thinking about that, or I only start, really started thinking about this for the last three years. That is my privilege. Yeah. I did not have to grow up talking about how I would walk through the world. And this is where I will name the Black Lives Matter movement as so invaluable. And I will also name that when it first started, I was only partially paying attention at first. I will name this in myself. Um, It's so important and I need to be doing my work. And so while I would say I started my work three years ago, I'm applying my work probably only in the last week. <laughs> and you're not alone. Right? <laughs> we're all, we're all and, Well, I'm not alone and I have to own that. I have to own, I, I've been having a lot more conversations. I don't know if you can start hearing my dog, but he has opinions too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mostly because um, the garage opened, but you know, we'll, we'll say that he's trying to articulate a point. Um, I only s started having more explicit conversations in the last week. And I, and I don't want to feel better about that. I actually want to sit in that discomfort of, wow, I made mistakes leading up to this last week. When the Black Lives Matter movement started, I was having conversations and saying things that were really actually racist. And I didn't know it. And I was corrected. <laughs> And 
I was really uncomfortable because a lot of times they were in social settings Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, with some people who I was not as close with. And I needed that. And I need to have that more. And I need to sit in this discomfort of I don't have the solution and I can't fix it and I can't know it. And when I'm having sadness or shame or guilt around this, um, that needs to be my motivator to do better. That doesn't need to be something that's fixed. And I think about this in mindfulness practice as well. When we sit in mindfulness, it's not about I'm going to stop thinking. I am going to stop feeling. I am going to be in perfect um, and just like perfect focus on what's going on. Some of that is, wow, I am feeling this. Wow, (laughs) I am thinking this. And so my practices in personal and professional development are, wow, I am saying this. And I want to name in this moment that if I say anything on this recording and taking this risk to try and talk about it and try to be more direct and probably fall into the talking around it, uh, that's my pattern. Any listener is welcomed to tell me that I am doing something wrong so I can do better. It's also not your job. It's mine. Well said. So I hold both because there is this sense of how overwhelming, how overwhelming it is to move towards the spectrum of being an ally. Mm. And I would say move towards because I don't know what it means to be an ally and I don't know if I can define that. I am not an expert in that. I am not an expert in cultural humility. This is, these are really my stories and my practice of it. So I aim towards being better and I have to sit with the fact that I will never get to a clean arrival. Just like my five-year cycle, I have arrived and I have not arrived. <laughs> yeah. Um, because cultural humility is not about arrival. It is about a continuous pursuit of understanding alongside sitting with the discomfort of not knowing. Mm-hmm. And making I mistakes. <laughs> and making mistakes and owning mistakes And not looking for someone to pat you on the back and say, oh, that's okay. Because probably it's not. (laughs) It's probably not okay. And I might get upset about some of those mistakes. I can still feel this moment when, um, when I said all lives matter. I've said it before. Not in the explicitly racist way, not in the I'm going to go join the All Lives Matter movement. I didn't even know that existed when I said it. That's how much I was uninformed. (laughs) That's how blind I was in that moment. That when someone said, oh, my God, what did you just say? (laughs) When someone just named that and I could sink into my gut of that feeling um i was like wow i need to sit here i need to be in this discomfort a hundred more times so that i can maybe start to have more of those practices if we take this week and we start creating a to-do list okay i'm gonna read this book I'm going to watch this documentary. I'm going to have conversation with one person and I'm going to be done. Check. Complete. I have competence. I am an ally. <laughs> I, have a, I have done it. Then we're not going to move as a society. Mm. I find it very interesting when I had a conversation this week 
and someone was worried about, I don't want to get too political, but, and I said, you know, this isn't political. This is societal. This isn't politics. This is a larger, (laughs) a larger issue in my conceptualization of it. And it does make me think about what is taboo to say and what is not. What are the conversations that we don't have? And why is it that they became, became taboo? Was it to avoid this discomfort? Was it to make things so civil that we'd feel they were okay? That this normal that we've created is okay? So we still have the to-do list. We just have to know that it's actually a never-ending to-do list. <laughs> yeah. And we're not going to arrive at the end of it. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So just because I talk to one colleague and I have a frank conversation and... Um, and I'm glad that I was able to support someone when they weren't feeling like people were bringing this up. I don't get to pat myself on the back and yeah. say, look at me. <laughs> I had this great conversation. It was so in depth. It was really moving. Wow. I'm an ally. Instead, I feel wow, I do not know. This conversation has actually opened my eyes to more things that I do not understand. So yes, I've watched the 13th, which I highly recommend. And I've read some books. And I still ordered some more. (laughs) And I still need to have some more conversations. I feel fortunate that I'm in graduate school at the moment. I am getting my master's in marriage and marriage family therapy counseling. Um, And so I'm having some more of those conversations as well in a group space, in the academic space and in spaces where people are being pretty explicit and naming their experience of going to a rally or having a family where there are mixed race, so they might have children who are black, but then they also have, um, they might be a parent who is not, and so they have to have some of these conversations or name some of their mistakes as a parent. Um, And so I'm having these conversations and I'm thinking to myself, how much we have to balance learning from others and learning from ourselves. Mm. Um, There are some spaces where I can, oh, again, another emphasis from my dog. (laughs) They know. (laughs) They do that. Um, There might be an assumption, and that's where our biggest issues are, right? When we're making those assumptions that as we are trying to wake up to what is going on and trying to be mindful in how we really try to uplift the Black Lives Matter movement as well as other movements towards equity and inclusion, that we are not assuming our role and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big thing that I'm sitting with is I should not be a leader in this. But that's maybe just me. Because at the same time, that doesn't mean that I need to be silent or I need to not consider how to approach these conversations or um, write letters or donate or take action. Yeah. It to, may just mean that I'm not going to be the leader in that. To to add to that, this whole week I've also been trying to navigate with like the MTC platform and like how to best 
do the best right now and it's it's conflicting because it's like okay so it's time for us I'm also a white woman (laughs) you know to to be quiet and to listen but there's also I've heard black people say well um you know other white people might not listen to my message if it's coming from Mm -hmm. my mouth but they might listen to it if it's coming from your mouth so it's like okay so but I also don't want to be one of those people who like has the savior mentality it's it's a a delicate balance yeah yeah right now I feel like my work is like sitting between the savior and the silent Mm -hmm. and where is the the middle ground of that And our conflict is good for us. This is good for us. This is what we need to be sitting in. And as far as I know, there's not going to be a right answer. So full disclosure, this segment has been re-recorded due to the potential harm in what I had originally said in this section of the interview. Instead of spreading anecdotal and hypothetical information, I wanted to take this moment to share what I did wrong and why it was wrong. When we try to conceptualize or hypothesize about others in a public forum, in this case, uh, people of color or... Um, me talking about a training I went to where um, the perspective of immigrants was shared, there is a large potential for harm. While our intention, or at least my intention, may be to change and shift perspectives, the impact can be the spread of misinformation. So I'm taking this moment to name my mistake because I'm guessing I'm not the only one who has acted with good intentions and has done harm. Part of learning to speak about privilege is staying on topic, staying focused on what our role is and not making assumptions about those around us. Where can we focus on opening doors to conversations, knowing that we'll do it wrong? And what fits in the public sphere and what needs to be our own private work? If you are looking for one place to learn about clinical applications and understanding our power as clinicians, I highly recommend the Western Region AMTA conference session by V. Fansler and Yana Ramos on consent, coercion, and compliance. The conference recordings are still available until the end of the year. And if you register now, you can still watch it. It's free if you're in the Western region and only $25 if you're not in the Western region of AMTA. And you'll also get access to all the other recordings and sessions. So I wanted to offer this reflection instead of my kind of hypothetical reflection that we deleted before this recording was shared. I want you to take a moment to recall when you were afraid to speak up about racism. Remember how it felt? Did you say anything? Did you stay silent? Did you later forget about that moment until today? Or maybe you're having trouble picturing a moment like this. Let's sit with this for just a moment. I can name for myself, and maybe you can relate to this, that not sitting with these moments and not being with the silence and the fear, being able to put that on a shelf or to forget those moments can be part of our privilege. Now back to the original recording. another example of something that we haven't had to sit in that decisional dilemma 
I have sat and stared at text messages that I was going to send for so much longer, <laughs> hoping that I'm going to do it right and having to name for myself that part of me wants some kind of gratitude in return. Part of me wants to be identified as an ally and as a safe space. That is white privilege still. Mm. Even though the other part of me wants it to be about them and wants it to be about helping someone feel like they can if they want to, but they don't have to. Yeah. This is a necessary discomfort. And so sitting with more necessary discomforts is my goal right now. <laughs> yeah. This is why I'm talking about this at all. This feels like a huge risk to talk about and have recorded <laughs> and have shared whenever it is shared. And I'm probably going to overthink this later today. That's just going to happen. And that's all okay. We need to get uncomfortable. And then we're going to get uncomfortable again. And then we're going to get uncomfortable again. I was having a conversation earlier today and it came up, you know, how do we fix this? And... Number one, I don't know if the fixing mentality is good. We have that as clinicians, don't we? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, that's actually another big piece of um, – I'm going to get sidetracked, but really quick. There's another big piece of cultural humility for me has also been uh, this idea of ableism. Yeah. And uh, how much our training – really leans into having improvement and having uh, goals and having um, having things that can be clean and solved Evidence <laughs> in a way. Yeah, data. Data. So there's a big and, right? It's not a but, it's an and. That is necessary and when are we creating goals that are for us to see progress and document success and have a number for an insurance company? Mm-hmm. When, when that outweighs the person who's in front of us, we're going to have some issues. Probably a lot of that comes from right now working in hospice and working with patients and families and working with a document to the decline model, right? We, um, I would say hospice clinicians have to sit with this dual side of here is our benefit and here is the decline at the same time. We are not necessarily documenting towards now they are verbalizing five or six words instead of one or two, because that might mean that they are no longer eligible for service Exactly, and they are not going to be on hospice anymore. And I've seen that happen. Um, so where is it that we can acknowledge the small responses and the sense of support that comes from that instead of the person saying words? I have one person Right now, I'm actually doing straight phone just because of accessibility. It's one of those, I want the family to be able to um, use FaceTime and use those resources, which means that I'm only on the phone because otherwise it could overwhelm the system. It just is how it is. And fortunately, there's someone in there who's willing to be my uh, translator. They can tell me. what they're seeing. Uh So when they see a head gesture or when they see that the eyes are still open, (laughs) we're good. Um, And this is someone who I feel like it's um, everyone else's goal for the, for words to come out, which they do sometimes one word at a time. 
it feels like it's really annoying for the person (laughs) themselves. Uh, Like that's not their goal. Their goal is not to talk to me. Yeah. They don't really want to. Um, For whatever reason, it could be physically uncomfortable to say words. Um, And it kind of just seems emotionally annoying. Like someone's asking. So I always make it humor of, so I can't see you. (laughs) If you have any words for me, that's helpful. And I will just trust that you're taking this in. And then of course I have the translator who can, at least that's what I call the caregiver (laughs) when I'm doing straight phone is okay. Their eyes are still open or there was a head nod or, you know, these other things. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what's going to sustain the therapeutic relationship and, and the emotional change and the sense of support more than, okay, our goal is one word <laughs> per session. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, again, speaks to that um, larger spec- spectrum of I- identity and and cultural humility is where are we imposing our privilege onto someone else? Mm. When are we imposing our lens and assumptions um, and sometimes biases, but sometimes it's really just as simple as our values and our lens, um, which doesn't sound negative, but it can still have a negative impact Mm -hmm. when we are not seeing why we see something a certain way. Yeah. Why is it that we think that someone should say these words? Or why is it that we think that someone would have a better quality of life um, if they could sit up or sing or even opening their eyes? Do they have to? Some people listen to music with their eyes closed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, um, or even eye contact, right? That's a big thing that can have, that can mean different things to different people. So it really comes back to knowing that we cannot see everything and we'll never be able to see the whole picture. We are seeing one corner of an entire sphere of a person. And there aren't even corners, right? So we're seeing one. (laughs) We think it's just this flat circle. Yeah. Um, And there's, and we'll never get all the way around. Even in the people who we're closest to. Mm. Even with our loved ones, we don't see the entire person. So when we're interacting with them or when they're, asking for help or when they're giving us feedback about what we're saying or what we're doing, bringing in that not knowing and being okay with the discomfort that will happen with that is one of the things that I'm just trying to to sit with and, and hoping that people will be able to sit with some more. Yeah. And I'm going to open it up if anyone listening wants to have or start a conversation, then do it in the Facebook group, the Music Therapy Chronicles Facebook group. Um, you know, let's let's get uncomfortable together. <laughs> let's let's do that. Let's do the work. So. Um, so 2020 can be a year of change all around, all around. I don't think it's a coincidence that. Um, you know, a very old cathedral burnt down and humanity came together to figure that out. And then there were forest fires in Australia and then everyone was stuck at home and there's this global pandemic and suddenly we're all one and then this happens. I think that all this is progressively getting us toward the change we need to see personally. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We could. And change is good and it's uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. And we could keep talking about this for forever. So uh, do you have anything you want to add before we move into the rapid fire? I think that's a a good place to end. Yeah. To be continued. Not in this episode. Yes. To be continued (laughs) in general. It's the end on this this recorded. (laughs) Yes. On this recording anyway. 
thank you. Thank you for uh, opening up and sharing your thoughts and for being vulnerable. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. First one is coffee or tea? Coffee. And sometimes tea, but mostly coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Early bird or night owl? Early bird? But I was actually told recently that that might be because I have a dog. Sometimes you just have to. Yep. Uh, I think I've I've been trained into an early bird. (laughs) Fair enough. Something you would tell your younger self. It is okay to not have all the answers. Your music therapy elevator speech. Music therapy is the use of music by a credentialed professional as a medium for change, connection, and therapeutic aims. And usually I will um, parse that into whatever is meaningful in that moment um, because in hospice, change is usually the symptoms. Um, Connection is usually the family and therapeutic aims is where it kind of blurs into the emotional spiritual that other team members are also working towards. Um, And that's only when appropriate (laughs) because otherwise it's uh it's more about the listening side of the music impact yeah your favorite self-care practice right now it is journaling that has become the most consistent um It can turn into poetry, it can turn into drawing, it can turn into a song, it can um, take on many forms. Even though another one that uh, I've recently, I continue to do, which I think I brought up on um, the Creative Therapy Umbrella podcast was uh, doing a lot of like dream boarding, journaling, writing on the back of... um, wrapping paper, mm-hmm. taking Sharpies. And um, I actually did that recently with with COVID-19 and the impact and like, what are my fears and what are my dreams still and what, um, just like putting in like where my, what my losses are and having a place to put a lot of different thoughts and emotions. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Something that's currently adding value to your life. That's a very good question. Um, I'm going to start with (laughs) the first answer that came to my mind, which was bagels. Cool. Um, (laughs) I like bagels too. And the the reason that is, is... um, uh, it's because when this all started, um, and by that I mean COVID-19, um, both my husband and I, um, we would have kind of like all staff kind of meetings and there would be, or with him actually, cause he works in tech, he'd have bagel Wednesday. And then I would have bagel <laughs> Wednesday when we had all staff meetings. And so there was this, connection to normalcy that was felt by getting bagels and bringing them into the house and um, having that available. So I think um, that and also having just a lot of gratitude for communities that are willing to have open discussions. Mm. I have a lot of different groups that probably gave me the confidence to even speak about Black Lives Matter and speak about cultural humility and personal and professional bias here is thanks to having uh, family and colleagues and music therapy, peer supervision groups, and a lot of different people 
that I could, I guess, practice with and know that it was safe uh, to say the wrong thing. So a lot, there's a lot of value in, um, in having those different kind of safe spaces of connection. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Your favorite intervention or song to use in a session? I use a lot of reflective songwriting, which sometimes turns into legacy projects. Uh, and recently with phone, straight phone visits, um, and sometimes with the family members because uh, the patient may be actively dying, um, or even in person, when I did in person before at our inpatient unit where I still go, there might be a person on service and I don't know anything about them and they can't talk anymore and they can't share their story. And so I will ask families to, depending on the situation and when comfortable um, and clinically appropriate, to ask them to describe them, to share any um, favorite stories or to even share what they hope for their loved one in this last piece of their life. And then I will sing that back to them. And I'll ask them, am I hearing this right? And then I'll just straight sing it. Um, sometimes I'll also ask their permission <laughs> before I turn it into a song, again, depending on the person. Um, and I've found that um, one of the reasons that's my favorite is because it really can help on multiple levels of both honoring the person uh, as they are. This is not representative of them. They are lying in bed and they are unable to talk. That doesn't represent someone. Yeah. So what is their person underneath? And, um, and then to also have the family be able to process what's happening and to be able to validate and reinforce their own sources of comfort or hope or sense of connection. And then sometimes that turns into something permanent that they return to in their grief process. So mm. it's almost like pre-bereavement um, and also that connection piece. Yeah. How beautiful. It made me think about how um, I hope and I guess I know that the artists of our time are doing that for us right now so that in 10 years we'll have art and songs and poems to reflect on what we're experiencing globally mm -hmm. yeah yeah awesome lastly where can people find you and connect with you i am on if you want to see my instagram versus my dog you will go to Brittany.mtbc. i'm also on facebook Brittany tashkov um you can see some uh, I think I wrote A Day in the Life of a Hospice Music Therapist, on, and it's still up on hospiceoftheeastbay.org. Um, I also have my email, which you can include in the show notes. Um, and I'm happy to connect with anyone um, through email. We're also hoping to take on interns while also navigating this time. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for an internship um, and be ready to have hard conversations with me. I definitely include that one. Yeah. <laughs> At least one week, which may not be enough, but um, at least one part of my curriculum is always that that cultural humility piece. Um, yeah. Alrighty. I will link all of that. Thank you again for opening up and being vulnerable and talking about stuff clinically and personally, professionally. Absolutely. Oh, I forgot one thing. Yeah. I also have the music therapy ed course oh. on That's right. um, funding and program development. So if you're interested in the business mindset piece, um, 
that turned into an e-course. So <laughs> awesome. that is one place to find that as well. Yeah, I will link that as well. Awesome, because that's a great resource for, for people, um, especially since our profession is more businessy than what we're learning in school, which we acknowledge is a 50-50 thing, but <laughs> it's good to have courses like that. It's not fully on you universities. You have a lot to teach. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so now we can take your course instead. So thank you. Thank you so much for making the time to be on the show. Absolutely. Awesome. Have a good week. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the second half of my conversation with Brittany and uh, we'll also have a conversation of your own. It's important to note that, as she said, this is an ongoing to-do list for us all to do better, uh, to be the change we want to see and to make those changes happen. It's time. Again, we hope that this episode has been a thought-provoking conversation for you and um, inspires you to have some of your own conversations about these difficult topics. We recognize that this change can't happen without making mistakes along the way, so maybe you can learn from some of our mistakes in this conversation um, and feel more comfortable and confident making your own along the way of this transformation, um, the societal transformation as well. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, uh, find us on Facebook and join our group. You can also find us on Instagram. Uh, on social media, I post a headshot of the guest each week when the episode comes out. So if you ever, you know, want to see who you're hearing on the show, you can find their lovely pictures there. And as always, if you or someone you know wants to be on the podcast, or if there's someone you want to hear on the show, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at musictherapychronicles.com. And if you have a special request for a guest, and then you become a patron on patreon.com, you can ask all your questions for that person right there on Patreon. And you can become a patron for just a dollar a month. Uh, our quote for this week is... Be brave enough to be bad at something new.